0: Today, we're going to be uh, speaking towards this series that we've been in all month. This is the last uh, Sunday of the month, and I'm so excited to talk about this topic today, If this is story. Uh, If you haven't been with us, uh, lucky you, I'm about to recap everything we've said, not because I'm afraid anybody forgot, but because this is my last chance to really drill down on these points before we move into another topic in April, Uh, and we started this series talking about Uh, This is our story, and the second week was this is my story, and and the idea of of this is that God is doing a work in each and every one of our lives individually, amen? Amen. Anybody testify today? God's working in your life. He's working in my life, And, and we have a testimony. You have a testimony. You may not be called to stand on a platform and preach, but Paul told Timothy, who was called the pastor, he said, do the work of an evangelist. Peter said this, you should be able to give an acceptable answer for the faith that you have. So every believer, regardless of what your spiritual gifting is, you have a story and your story matters. But we also understand that that everything God does for his people, uh, he does for his people. Even the work that he does uniquely in a person has a greater purpose. And so what I mean by that is that the work God is doing in your life is not just for you. In fact, we've said it like this. You cannot do everything God's called you to do. You cannot be the person that God has fully equipped you to be on your own. There's just too much. There's too much that God has said in his word about our relationships and about our our giftings and our priorities to the body of Christ. That you just can't do everything God's called you to do all by yourself. And so we understand that God has equipped us. He's he's wired us for community. A perfect example of that, and and Earl mentioned it earlier, but yesterday, uh, Connie launched a a brand new ministry called Circle of Hope. It's an opportunity for people to come together and and offer comfort and counseling and support to individuals that are impacted, either directly or by loved ones, uh, by cancer. And yesterday, we saw a tangible expression of exactly what I'm talking about that Connie didn't just have a heart for ministry, she had an experience. She's having an experience right now, going through uh, chemo and and dealing with cancer. But her story is not just for her. And so she's leveraged what God's doing in her life for the greater good. That's what happens with life groups, as you heard testified a moment ago. It's not about sitting in a living room and and knowing all the right answers to the Bible questions. You know, life groups, not Bible trivia. Aren't you glad? (laughs) You don't have to feel the pressure, oh, I don't want to go because they're going to ask a question. And I don't know. And people are going to think I don't read my Bible. And that's not what it's about. Coming together in a life group is about sharing your story, us sharing our story. And here's the reason that it works. Here's the reason that the Circle of Hope ministry works. Because people might be uh, impressed with your strengths. But the reality is people connect with your weaknesses. Haven't you found that to be true? When people would be willing to be a little bit more vulnerable and and put their defenses down and begin to tell their story, begin to tell you what they've been through or or what God has done, people connect through weakness. And so God has wired us for community. He's built us and designed us to connect with one another. This is our story. And I want to encourage you. I know we've talked a lot about life groups already, but let me just encourage you practically. If you're in the church and, and nobody knows you and nobody needs you, you need to fix that. Amen. There's something wrong with that picture. If you're connected to the local church and, and you, haven't, you haven't invested in somebody's life, you're not building towards somebody else's encouragement. If you're not giving out, something is missing. Now, I'm not saying this because I'm pushing a program called Life Groups, all right? Hear me today. This is not about program, it's about your purpose. Reality is, you might not even uh, be a part of a life group. You you may be a part of a church that doesn't even do life groups or Sunday school or, or small groups or cell groups or whatever you might have. The reality is there are people that God's put in your life And you're supposed to influence them. Maybe you're here and uh, your kids have grown up and you're empty nesters. Or maybe you don't have kids. Maybe you never did. But you come to church and you notice that somebody else's kid is always attracted to you. Like they just, they look up to you for whatever reason. There's a connection there. Listen, that's not a coincidence. That's that's a God relationship. that, That the Lord might be speaking to you about mentorship. Maybe there's a, a boy or a girl here or a teenager that they're at church and their family's not here. They need a spiritual father. They need a spiritual mother. They need somebody to connect and invest in them. So I'm going to say it again here at the introduction. If you're in the church and nobody knows you or nobody needs you, you've got to fix that. Yeah. Something's missing because this, this is our story. And God is doing something in you and we praise God for it. But you're never going to fulfill your God-given destiny on your own. Last week, we talked about how this story is his story. Ultimately, what God is doing in you, what God is doing in me, is is for his glory and his honor. And here's the good news. When you get involved in God's story, your story gets better. Amen? That's what Jesus meant when he said, I've come to give you life to the fullest. I'm fully convinced that I could not create an alternative uh, life that would be more satisfying than the one that Jesus has for me. So I never have to worry about if if God's plan is good or not. I just have to focus my attention on staying in His will. It's His story for His grace. And and last weekend, we sang that that song, Amazing Grace. I want to tell you, that song is more than a song to the man that wrote it. John Newton wrote it. And John Newton was a former slave uh, owner and slave trader who was converted and then became a preacher and a poet. For John John Newton, he he was genuinely amazed by grace. It it wasn't just something that he 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 penned an eloquent lyric about. He was genuinely amazed by God's grace, that God would actually take some slave trader, somebody who had seen and performed such atrocities, and he would allow him to preach the gospel. The year was 1807, and John Newton was on his deathbed. A young clergyman came in to see him. While he was there, the young preacher expressed deep regret at the thought of losing such a distinguished and important laborer for the Lord. John Newton replied, he said, it is true, I'm going on before you, but you'll soon come after me. When you arrive, our friendship no doubt will cause you to inquire of me. But I can tell you now, already, where you'll most likely find me. I'll be sitting at the feet of the thief whom Jesus saved with his dying moments on the cross. Even at the end of his life, after all the good that he did, after all the times that he redeemed after salvation, John Newton was still just amazed that, that God's grace would include him. His words echo the words of the Apostle Paul. The greatest soul winner to ever live since Jesus, and Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. He, he had this perspective that I just, I will never deserve the grace of God. That's the story, and here's the thing about God's amazing grace. No one who's ever deserved God's grace has been saved by his grace. Because there's only one person that ever did deserve God's grace. There's only one that ever deserved to escape the penalty of sin, which is death. And that one chose to lay his life down as a sacrifice for us. Come on, that's amazing. That's amazing. That's the grace of God, that Jesus would take our place, die on the cross for us. And, And when we think about his story, we have to come away with this understanding that there's no limit that God won't go to. There's no one that's too far gone beyond his reach. God goes after the least of these. He goes after the lost. He goes after the last. I heard one preacher say, he goes from the uttermost to the guttermost. His heart is to save. That's his story. The truth is, as amazing as it is, and as much as we love to sing and celebrate it on Sunday, you and I rub shoulders every day with people that are unamazed. You and I rub shoulders with people every day who don't know that this story is not just my story, it's not just the church's story, it's not just his story, but they haven't yet discovered that this is their story. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. That thought, that this, what we celebrate, what we sing about, what we're going to proclaim from this pulpit today, this is their story. You know, statistics tell us that the church in America is declining. I would say today that it's not declining because we live in an age of the rejected gospel. The church is declining today, I believe, because we live in the day and age of the unproclaimed gospel. It's just not being proclaimed. Now, I don't mean that it's not accessible. I mean, we all know that we have more access to the gospel today than any other generation that's ever lived. I mean, we have Christian bookstores that are dedicated to just resourcing people with an endless supply of information. You can get on YouTube and attend thousands of churches all over the world from the comfort of your own home. People can sit right now and tune into this service online from wherever they're at. I mean, all you need is Wi-Fi. It's not a miracle. You just need Wi-Fi. So I get it that the gospel is accessible. The problem is we have so much access, we have so much information coming at us, that it's become white noise. You know what white noise is, right? Right. White noise is, is every frequency that can be heard by the human ear at the same time. And, and because you can hear everything, what happens is your ear can't discern one thing. And so it's just white noise. And that's, that's the sound of our culture today. And somewhere in all of that is all of the, the gospel. And so what happens is we as humans, we have this amazing God-given ability. It's called the reticular activating system. And it allows us to filter out all the stuff that doesn't matter. Because if we couldn't do that, we'd go crazy. I mean, just think for a minute how much you're filtering out right now. If we got really quiet, and just listen to all the noise in this room. I hear the church bell going off on the other side of town. I hear kids upstairs. I hear the fans and the motor running on this projector and, and people opening their candy wrappers behind you, you know. You, you hear all that, right? But you filter all of that out to tune into what matters. Now, can I give you the good news? You matter. To lost people. Maybe not to all of them, but to some of them, you matter. Now, I may not matter to the ones that you matter to, and so some of them, they, they could care less that next Sunday is Easter. Some of them could care less that they could tune in today and watch this service on Facebook Live. They may, they may not have any care in the world for a life group or for an Easter egg hunt at a, at a church, but you matter. Your voice breaks through the noise, you matter, and it's our responsibility as the people of God to tell them, "This is their story. It's their story." Did you know eighty-six percent of people that come to faith in Jesus come because of the personal witness of a friend, a family member, or uh, an associate, a neighbor? Eighty-six percent. That's amazing, but what's equally amazing and very discouraging is this statistic, that 95% of church members have never led anyone to Christ. So while 86% of the people come to faith because of a person that they know, that they have their ear, someone that can break through the noise, 95% of us have never led anyone to Jesus before. And so here we are. Living in an age of an unproclaimed gospel. It's everywhere, but it's nowhere. It's not being shared. And I'm telling you today, there are people in your life that the Holy Spirit has put in your path that need you to tell them. This is their story. This thing called grace. This work of salvation. This incredible called the body of Christ. It's their story. It's for them. I want you to go with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. There's several passages. I don't know how many of them I'll get to, but uh, just get your fingers ready because we're going to be flying through the book of Acts. But as as you turn there, I just felt it wouldn't be fitting to go through today without reading a portion of scripture. Uh, Maybe you knew this. Maybe you didn't. But today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is one week before Easter Sunday. This is the day that Jesus uh, mounted a donkey's colt and he rode into town amidst the praises of all the people. So while you're finding your place in uh, Acts chapter 1, I just want to read a verse to you. It's out of John chapter 12, verse 12 and 13. It describes that day. It says, the next day the crowd that had come for the festival, heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and they went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is, the, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. So all the people are waving palm branches... And th- those were, that was a sign of victory, to wave the palm branches. So all the people are declaring victory. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus comes riding in on a donkey. Now, there's some different you know, explanations on why he was riding a donkey. Some would say because a, a donkey is an animal of peace, and Jesus came as a king of peace. Uh, that's, that's a good explanation. Others would, would tell it a little differently. You know, In in this day and age, if there was a general who had conquered a nation or a people, uh, he would ride on a war horse going into battle, Uh, an animal that was trained so well, so diligently, maybe even better than the person riding it. These war horses knew what to do in conflict. But after they had already conquered the people, then they would come in in their triumph procession. They would come in to to celebrate their victory, and the commander or the king would ride on a colt, an animal that had no clue what to do if a war was to break out. It was almost like in that moment, he was saying visually to everybody that, you're no threat to me. I have no need for a well-trained animal. I am not in the least bit concerned that, that you are a threat to me. We have conquered you. We have the victory. Wave the branches. I'm going to ride this little skittish colt because we have the victory. But you understand, on Palm Sunday, they didn't do like what we do. You know, what we do, a lot of times in the church, and maybe some of you have been a part of a a service like this, you come to church on Palm Sunday, and the ushers pass out palm branches to everybody, right? And then we start singing a song that has the word Hosanna in it, and everybody starts waving their palm branches. And I got to be honest, as a worship leader, I love that. I love that Sunday because everybody has to move. Either you participate or you duck, but you have to move, right? And I just like seeing people move in worship. You guys make me nervous when you get real still. But how many of you understand that if we just come to church and we wave the branches at each other and say, we've got the victory, the king is in the house, how many of you know we miss the point, we miss the mission? See, the idea of Palm Sunday was not that they all gathered together in the temple and waved their branches at each other, though that that might make for a great celebration. They went out into the streets. They threw their cloaks on the dusty road leading towards uh, Jerusalem, and they proclaimed it so that everybody could hear it. That's the idea of Palm Sunday, that we actually make some noise outside of the church. Amen? Amen? God wants us to celebrate the Lord's coming in a public fashion. What I want you to see today in the book of Acts is that from day one, the Holy Spirit has been pushing the church. And I don't think pushing is too hard of a word. He's been pushing the church to tell the world this is their story. As you study the early church, there's an obvious theme of inclusiveness that begins to rise to the surface. As the Holy Spirit is poured out, and we're going to look at it in several places, boundaries are continually crossed over. Walls of separation are broken down. Look in Acts chapter 1 with me. Verse 8 is a powerful verse. In fact, if you don't have this verse underlined or highlighted, you ought to. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is Jesus' promise to the church. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I'm going to tell you why this verse is so powerful, because it communicates Jesus' plan for the church. You're going to get the Holy Spirit. He's going to empower you, and then you're going to be my witnesses, but it's also a key verse because it serves as a table of contents for the rest of the book. If you read that one verse, it gives you an outline for everything else that that Luke, the author, is going to tell us, that the Holy Spirit is going to come on the church, Acts 2, we're about to look at it, and then they're going to become witnesses in Jerusalem. The first seven chapters are all about them being witnesses in Jerusalem. And then he said, you're going to become witnesses in Judea and Samaria. Chapters 8 through 12 are all about the church going outside of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And then chapters 13 to 28 are all about them being witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, at the end of Acts, Paul's in Rome. That doesn't mean that they got there, they got to the ends of the earth, and it's over. No, Rome's not the ends of the earth. Rome was the center of the Roman Empire, that's why the book of Acts doesn't actually have a conclusion. If you read the end of the book of Acts, it just kind of stops. And and I've heard it said before that the reason might just be that we today in 2018 are still living in the 28th chapter. That still today, the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. And it's as if at every hindrance, at every roadblock, at every obstacle, whether it's outward or internal, the Holy Spirit, it communicates to the church. This is their story. I want you to look first at Acts chapter 2. This is the promise fulfilled. Acts chapter 2, the Bible says in verse 3, they're all in the upper room. The disciples are praying. There's 120 believers there. And it says, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Verse 4, all of them, the whole, the 120, were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, I got to just say, I think this is this is important and I don't want you to miss the, the moment here because there's a lot of... Uh, denominations or or interpretations of the scripture even that would say that, you know, the gift of, of tongues is, is not for today. But listen, hear me carefully. Even for people that would say that, that would say, you know, the, the gift of speaking in tongues, that's not for today. None of them would deny this experience. So I just want you to hone in on this experience because something miraculous happens in Acts chapter 2. And we don't really see this happen in the other times that the Holy Spirit is poured out. But the Bible says in this moment, the Holy Spirit's poured out, and they all begin to speak in other tongues. Now, look, 1 Corinthians 14 says that when we pray in the Spirit, we don't pray in tongues of men. We pray in tongues of angels. Our mind is unfruitful, but our heart and our spirit is edified. So Paul's telling us there that sometimes when we speak in tongues, we utter mysteries. It's not your language or anybody's language. It's a heavenly language, but that's not what happened right here in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, it says they're filled with the Spirit, and they all began to speak in other languages. Now, listen. Look with me at verse 5. Now, they're staying in Jerusalem were many God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Because each one, listen, they heard their own language being spoken. This is not tongues of angels. This is tongues of men. The Holy Spirit is poured out. The church, the infant church, is filled with the Spirit, and they actually begin to speak in other dialects. There's some 15 uh, languages here, at least, that are represented in this chapter. And it says down in verse 11, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And it's almost as if in this moment, at the very first baptism in the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised. The Holy Spirit comes on the scene and in foreign languages, he makes a declaration. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, this is their story. This is their story. Right from the beginning, the Holy Spirit begins to thrust the church outside of its comfort zone to take the gospel where it's never been before. So Peter stands up in that moment all these people are gathered and they're listening and he begins to speak the gospel. He preaches an incredible message in Acts chapter 2. and By the time you get to verse 37, it says the people were cut to the heart with conviction and they asked, they said, what must we do? Look at verse 38 with me in Acts chapter 2. It says, Peter replied to him, repent and be baptized. Every one of you In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on to say, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now, you know that he was under the leading of the Holy Spirit when he said that. Because as you read through the book of Acts, you can see that Peter hadn't really even come to terms with this yet. We're going to read another passage in a few moments where he's resistant to the gospel going to as many as are afar off. And yet here he is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, saying that this gospel is is for you. This is your story. Go, Go with me quickly all the way to Acts 8. Because now we're in the second phase of this thing. And the Bible says in Acts chapter eight that a great persecution broke out against the church. It says in the first couple verses that the believers, everyone except the apostles, were scattered everywhere. Look at verse four with me though. Verse four says, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So I think it's safe to assume that, that everywhere that the persecuted church went, The gospel went forth, but Dr. Luke, who's writing this, chooses to give us an example through Philip, and it's not because what Philip did was exceptional or extraordinary. We should probably assume what Philip did is what all the believers did, but Luke writes about Philip because of where he's going, because he's already outlined in Acts 1-8 what the pattern is of the Holy Spirit. He's witnessed in Jerusalem. And now Philip is going down to Judea and Samaria. Look at it with me in Luke chapter 8, verse 5. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs that he performed, they paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now skip down to verse 12. But when they believed, Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now something interesting happens down in verse 14. The apostles in Jerusalem hear about it. They hear about the fact that Philip is preaching and the Samaritans are getting baptized in water. And they go, wait wait a minute, wait a minute. We don't get along with the Samaritans. Like, we're we're God's people. They they don't even worship at the right mountain. They're not God's people. We're God's people. We need to to explore this a little bit. We need to figure out if, if what's happening down there is an authentic work of the Spirit of God. And so the Bible says there in verse 14 that they sent Peter and John down to go check it out. So Peter and John come into this city in Samaria. And look at it with me in verse 15. It says, when they arrived, they prayed for these new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, so then Peter And John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Peter and John see it firsthand. They go, Whoa, did you see that? This is not just my story, this is not just our story. Did you see what the Spirit of God did? And it was like they heard the Spirit of God in that moment saying, Yeah, this is their story. My grace is not limited. By your perspective, this is their story. And then, if you get to the end of that chapter, verse 25 gives an interesting little commentary. It says, After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem. But look at what they did they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. You know, I think it's interesting that. Luke doesn't write that they preached in all the Samaritan villages on their way to visit Philip. No, they had the blinders on. We just gotta go and check this out. We're not really sure if this is a thing that God is doing or not. But they heard the Spirit. They saw the testimony of the work God was doing. And then they had a new conviction. They could not walk straight back to Jerusalem. They couldn't walk past all those Samaritan villages knowing that there are people there that are lost and dying and going to hell outside of a relationship with Jesus. And they preached in every town all the way home. Why? Because they heard the Spirit say, this is their story. Go with me to Acts 10. Acts chapter 10, starting in about verse 9, the Bible says that Peter is on a journey. He's headed to Joppa. He's going to stay in the home of a man named Simon, who was a tanner. He's hungry, he's tired, and he goes up on the roof to rest on the rooftop while they prepare the meal. While he's up there, he has a vision. We don't know if he falls asleep and has a trance, but God begins to show him something And he sees a sheet coming down from heaven, and inside that sheet are all kinds of animals that that dietary laws considered unclean. A Jewish person was not supposed to eat these things. And yet, in this vision, he hears the Lord speak to him, and he says, Peter, kill and eat. Peter says, I can't eat that stuff. Three times, the Spirit of Jesus says, kill and eat. So Peter's up on the roof, and he's trying to figure out, what does that mean? And while he's trying to figure out one revelation, God speaks to him again. And he says, hey, there are three men that are about to come and knock on your door. They're going to ask you to go with them. I want you to go. Peter's going, well, what's the sheet all about? (laughs) Sure enough, there's a knock at the door. Peter goes downstairs. There's some men. They said, hey, we're from Cornelius' house. He said, you're supposed to go with us. Peter says, Cornelius, the Gentile? Cornelius? Yeah, you're supposed to come with us. I don't go to Gentiles' houses, but okay, God said, God said, go. So, so Peter goes with them. All of a sudden he gets there. And, and I, I love this story because they take him to the home of Cornelius, this Gentile. And look down in verse 28. Peter gets to the house. Now, this is not the way to win friends and influence people, I can promise you. I mean, you would not be happy if you invited somebody to your house and this was the first thing they said, but Peter walks in the door. Verse 28, he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. They're going, well, glad you made it, right? <laughs> I mean, really. Really? I mean, it's almost like Peter comes in the door saying, look, I don't know why I saw the vision. I don't know why God wants me here. I just want to clarify that my understanding is this is wrong. So what did you want? Cornelius says, it's funny you ask. Uh, I didn't really want anything. But three days ago, God spoke to me and he gave me your address. He said you were going to be at the house of Simon the Tanner and that I was supposed to send people to come. So what did you want to say? And they're both awkwardly looking at each other, like, why are we here? So Peter does the only thing he really knows how to do when he's got an audience. And that's preach Jesus. And he begins to testify. He begins to tell them, and, and God does something supernatural in this moment. Nobody He doesn't give an altar call. He doesn't lay hands on anybody. In fact, he doesn't even get to finish the message, "Oh, I wish God would do this today." He's in the middle of his sermon, and look at what the Bible says happens down in verse 44, Acts 10. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. Wow, I was like, how did did they know that? Look at the next part. It says, the circumcised believers, that was all the people that came with Peter. That was the Jews. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. I mean, the Holy Spirit calls a preacher who doesn't want to go to go to a place to a guy that doesn't want to have him. He talks to both of them, and they find themselves in the same room. And the Holy Spirit interrupts the message that Peter didn't plan on preaching at a place he didn't plan on preaching it. And he baptizes everybody in the house. You know what the Holy Spirit's doing in that moment? Come on. He said, hey, Peter. This is their story. This is their story. See, the people of of Israel, they had waited for a long time. That's why they were so amped up on Palm Sunday to say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That wasn't just one year, by the way. They sang that song every year on Palm Sunday, right before Passover. You can read it in the Psalms. Every year, they, they sang it in anticipation that one day a Jewish Messiah would come and deliver his people. And so now that Jesus is raising Lazarus from the dead and performing miracles, people are excited that our Messiah has come and they just quite weren't ready to let everybody else in on the party yet. But the Holy Spirit from day one is pushing the church to understand that this is not just your story. He's not just your Savior. This is their story. I could do this all day we could just go through the book of acts i'm telling you i did do this this week and it would have been way too long of a sermon but just go real quick to one more place go to acts chapter nine i I gotta back up a little bit because Bible tells us that this persecution that had broken out, that scattered the church everywhere. The Bible tells us that the guy that was actually doing the persecuting was Saul of Tarsus. Saul was a terrorist. And if you could be good at terrorism, he was the best. He was persecuting the church. He's persecuting the believers. And That's why they're running. Some of them ran all the way to Antioch. Barnabas goes up to Antioch in Acts chapter 11 to see what's happening up there. And when he gets there, people are being saved. People are being delivered. Miracles are happening. He's so excited. He's like, man, this is all, God's doing something in a place that we've never seen God do anything before. I need to find a church planter. I need to find somebody that can come up here and minister to these people. You know who he goes and finds? He goes, he goes to Tarsus, and he finds Saul, the guy that back in Acts chapter 8 was persecuting the church. He goes and he finds Saul, and he brings him there. And for over a year, Saul preaches, and he declares the work of God. Here's a guy in Acts chapter 8 that was persecuting the church locking them in prison. But then in Acts chapter 9, as he's on his way to Damascus so that he can arrest more Christians, the Bible says the Holy Spirit, it's the presence of Jesus shows up in the middle of the road, knocks him off of his horse, blinds him with the light of his glory, and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Nobody was knocking on Saul's door, trying to give him a track, tell him to come to church for Easter. (laughs) Nobody's coming near Saul. With the gospel. But the Holy Spirit stops him in his tracks. To say this is his story too. He's not too far gone. In fact. I'm going to use him. And so the Holy Spirit speaks to another man named Ananias. And he says hey Ananias. Paul. Has been blinded by my glory. I need you to go pray for him. Ananias says Paul. As in. Paul, Saul, Saul of Tarsus, Paul. No, I'm not praying for him. That guy's a terrorist. I'm hiding from him. His picture's on the church bulletin board. That's not in there. But it might have been. Ananias felt like any one of us would have felt. But the Holy Spirit says, listen, I'm going to take a radical terrorist, and I'm going to turn him into a radical witness. You have no idea what I'm going to use him to do for my glory. Ananias, hear me. Hear the Spirit. This is Paul's story, too. And he goes and he prays for Saul, and the Holy Spirit fills him. And he's changed, radically changed. Becomes the most influential Christian to ever follow Jesus. Here's the reality. If the Holy Spirit doesn't compel the church, they never leave Jerusalem. The the gospel doesn't go to Judea, Samaria. It doesn't go to the Gentiles. Philip doesn't leave that incredible revival in Samaria and walk down some dusty desert road just so that he can bump into an Ethiopian, so that he can tell him about Jesus, so that he can then carry the gospel to the Horn of Africa. None of that happens if the Holy Spirit doesn't compel the church to go out and I would dare say today that unless the Spirit compels us, we don't go out of our comfort zone either. I mean, praise God, let's, let's wave the branches. I mean, the Lord saves. We got the victory. But unless the Spirit thrusts us to a place of understanding that this is not just our story, this is not just our celebration of His story, this is their story. There are people that are lost and dying all around us, and and, and the message of the the Capital C Church may be lost in the white noise of pop culture, but your voice can be heard. My voice can be heard. It might be a conversation at the water cooler. It might be an instant message back and forth in the middle of the night, but your voice matters, and you don't speak, and I don't speak unless the Spirit compels us. So I want to pray a prayer today for the church. This is a prayer for believers. I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would fill the church. I want to pray that he would fill us so much so that we can't silence his voice in our heart and in our ears. That he would fill us so much that when we get to that place where, where our understanding, our comfort wants to stop us, that we... Feel the Spirit compelling us to say this is their story too. I want to ask you to stand with me all over this room. My experience has been that when the Holy Spirit is poured out in the church, oftentimes we see evidences just like they did in the book of Acts. Peter knew his sermon was over. I mean, everybody was speaking in tongues. It was like, well, I can't keep preaching. I mean, the Holy Spirit's doing something. So we see all through the word of God, there are outward manifestations of the Spirit's baptizing of the church. But hear me today. I don't want any of those manifestations. Now, I'm not against them. But I'm going to tell you the one I'm looking for. The manifestation of the Spirit in my life is that you and I would be compelled that we would be thrust out of this place, that that today would not just be a day of us celebrating what God has done in our lives, but then when we leave this place today, our hearts would be on fire and in rhythm with the Holy Spirit that's saying to everybody we look at and everyone we pass, this is their story. This is their story. This is their story. And so I wanna ask you, if you're a believer in Jesus and if he saved your life, I wanna ask you to pray a prayer that his spirit would fill you his spirit would fill you, and that the evidence would be that your heart is is touched with the things that touch His heart. Can we just close our eyes for a moment? Would you just turn your hands upward towards heaven, just as a as a sign of yielding, as a sign of openness? Just begin to ask the Lord, God. Would you would you give me Your Spirit, Lord? Would You fill my life? with your Holy Spirit. It's been said that there's not a verse to be found in the word of God that tells lost people to go to church. There are many, many verses that tell the church to go to a lost world. Jesus, help us to not be satisfied by satisfying our conscience by throwing a party or Hosting an event and expecting lost people to come. It's not enough. We must be thrust into the harvest field. We must be compelled to the highways and the byways and the country lanes so that your house may be filled and more than just this house at 365 Orange Street, but God, that heaven would be filled and hell would be bankrupt. God, fill us with your spirit today that we are compelled. To tell others, this can be, this should be, this is their story. I want to invite you, if you're, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you've got a relationship with the Lord, just pray this prayer after me today. Say, dear Jesus, send your Holy Spirit. Fill my heart and life. I want to be moved by you. I want to be empowered to operate in the supernatural. I need your spirit to fill my life. And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to say to you, maybe you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. And I tell you, He loves you and He'll fill you with His Holy Spirit the moment you make room for Him. All you have to do is repent of your sins. As it is right now, there's a no vacancy sign over your heart's door. Maybe your God has been yourself. Maybe it's been your hobbies or your habits. But the moment we confess our sin, say, Jesus, forgive me. I'm sorry. I want you to be the Lord of my life. The Bible says he removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. Say, how far is that? I don't know. It sounds far. He removes it completely. And he comes in and takes residence in your heart and life. If you don't know the Lord, I want to encourage you to pray a prayer right now in your own words and just say, Jesus, Lord, I receive your forgiveness. I receive your presence in my heart and life to be my leader, to be my Lord, to be my guide. I'm sorry for living for myself when you died for me. God, I I recognize today I owe you my life and I surrender completely to you. God, thank you. Thank you for writing us into your story. And as we leave this place this week, God, every one of us, saved, being sanctified and filled with your Holy Spirit, God, may we see this world. May we see our friends and our enemies the way you see them. And may we be sent ones in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Amen. Listen as we...